that was my philosophy. Americans were dying. I, I, I could tell that was the case. Uh, we are paid to do a job, which is to protect folks. And, um, I'm so proud of my platoon for what they did that day. Hi, everybody. This is Alan Salisbury, Chairman Emeritus of the CODA Support Foundation, and welcome to Profiles in Service, the podcast that examines service to the nation in all of its dimensions. Today, I'm excited to welcome to the program Blake Hall, founder and CEO of IDME, a D.C. area-based company that serves business, government, and individuals with secure digital identification verification services. And you can correct that, Blake, if you want to correct no, that description. You, you Welcome it. to Profiles in Service. Thank so you, glad to have you. Appreciate you having me on. Blake, I know you've done countless interviews uh, about IDME and the exciting ride that you're on now and the game, the game-changing ride, I think I'd describe it as. And we'll certainly talk a little bit about that today. But I want to talk to you. Uh, probably more about your background, your driving motivations, what makes you tick. Sure. Uh, like to start at the beginning. Tell us about your growing up and your early thoughts about what you wanted to do with your life. I know your grandfather fought the Nazis in <laughs> World War II. That he did. Your, your father was also in the Army, whereas a colonel, he is a brigade commander. Was <laughs> the military a big influence in your early days? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, big, big boots to fill. And, uh, you know, graduated from high school in 2000, so pre 9-11. But uh, my grandfather is a command sergeant major, you know, landed at Anzio as a Browning automatic rifleman when he was 17 years old, uh, fought his way up through the Alps, uh, won a bronze star with valor at St. Etienne in France, and then was standing sentry on the Rhine when Germany surrendered, and then fought in Korea and two tours in Vietnam. Uh, my, my dad tried to get into West Point, uh, didn't. So he enlisted, went to the prep school. When he finally got in, uh, he was a star man and graduated in the top 10% of his class. So, uh, ah. well, and, um, and then became a, a brigade commander at Fort Sill. My uncle was, a uh, uncle Bob was a long range reconnaissance and surveillance, uh, team leader, uh, retired as an E8. Um, uh, my little brother's a Navy officer. So, you know, I'd tell him nobody's perfect, but, uh, you know, I think, um, as, as three generations of army goes, but service was just deeply ingrained in my family. And, um, I, you know, I, I never wanted to be a career soldier growing up, but you can't help look at that tradition of service and watch what my family had given. I, I felt an obligation to earn my citizenship. And, and that's why I went into uh, Vanderbilt and their ROTC program and in 2000 um was just to kind of earn my dues as an american and, and to serve the country and uh and then 9 11 happened you know a, a year in changed everything but that's that's where i was coming from in terms of yeah trying to live up to my family name so you would answer to the term military brat i would imagine i was yeah or am yes yes indeed how many high schools did you go to before you got your diploma three Three different high schools, yeah. So you've been through the drill, and and that's wonderful. Yeah. How, how old were you on nine eleven, and where were you when that happened? Yeah, I was um, I was seventeen years old as a freshman, and I think so. When nine eleven happened, I was uh, I just so I was eighteen years old because I turned uh, it was it was the beginning of sophomore year, and uh, I was on my way to a history class taught by Ruina Oligario, and I still remember. Uh, getting there and, and, you know, folks were crying and upset and realized that something, you know, really traumatic had happened and uh, went back, turned on the TV, was concerned about my dad for a while too. I knew he had a visit to the Pentagon planned and uh, thank God, you know, I called him up. He was fine, but it was, it was like a you know two day difference between his visit and when that happened. So that was, you know, personal. Also just realized, you know, that night going outside, there no planes or helicopters flying around from the medical center is really eerie how quiet it was in, a, in, a, in an American city on that day. And that's when I knew that um, what was probably a way to pay for college and peacetime service, I was almost certainly going to go 
to war and my mom's from Queens. So even though uh, we moved around all over the place, I'd spent a lot of summers in New York City with my grandpa who showed me the Twin Towers and the Empire State Building and, and that part of it. Um, I was really pissed, you know, and um, and and so I was like, well, if we're going to go to war, uh, I might as well play with the varsity here and wanted to be an infantryman and an army ranger and and started to prepare myself accordingly because I knew I was going to lead young men in, into battle. Were you already in ROTC at 9-11? Yes, sir. Tell me about the ROTC program. How well did you think that prepared you for? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I have such good memories. Uh, Ryan Jones uh, brought me in as a helicopter pilot, was wonderful mentor there. Um, Sergeant First Class Williams, the former Ranger instructor, and just you know salty as they come and and but just an amazing amazing teacher uh i i love the go gold battalion there and i think they gave me a tremendous foundation as an officer so that i was set up for success you know because lead, leading a platoon of 46 guys when you're 20 22 23 years old yeah. it's a crazy amount of responsibility and they did a, they did a really fantastic job of, of preparing the cadets there to be officers and leaders of men you mentioned your uncle, I think, was a ranger. Uh, he was uh, so he was a long range reconnaissance and surveillance um, uh, team sergeant. He was he was not a ranger himself. No. When when did you decide that you had to be a ranger? I was post. It was post nine eleven uh, when I when I realized, and you know, we uh, so I, I went through IBC, and I remember a general officer came in and talked to us, and he said, "You're all going to go to ranger school, and you're going to either come out with a tab or an excuse." And he goes, don't come out with an excuse. And I was like, all right. You now know, you make me feel inadequate. I only <laughs> went to jump school. I didn't do Ranger. And I didn't think I was going to be needing it. Although now in retrospect, I I realize that it's preparation for life as well <laughs> as your Army career. Oh, sir, I think what you've done to serve the country and, and your background, you know, signal intelligence, I think... Um, you know, look, the infantry is a, a different beast in terms of of culture, and you've you've given far more to the country in different ways. So you went on from from uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, did you go to the basic infantry basic course and then to Ranger School? Yep, I went to the infantry officer basic course. There are these like two weeks rotations as uh, as a student first sergeant, and I got moved in like halfway through, and I was like, oh my gosh, I was going to coast through IOBC, and then they left me there. <laughs> for eight weeks uh, because I was doing a good job. And so yeah, I remember like the third or fourth week I went in to talk to uh, the, it was a British guy who's like, you know, um, uh, helping out with the training. And I was like, Hey, first Sergeant raw. I was like, aren't the rotations supposed to be two weeks? Like I'm going on week four here. And he's like, Oh, be stupid to switch you out now. Wouldn't it? So he's like, you're doing quite a good job. And I was like, Oh my gosh. But it was an amazing leadership experience because for all those 200 plus lieutenants, uh, many of whom were from West Point uh, in my IBC class. I had a lot of responsibility to like keep the trains running on time, and I've been pretty frustrated with the student first sergeants like before me. And it was it was great preparation to be a platoon leader. So even though it was kind of annoying at the time in terms of additional work, little things that kind of helped tee you up to go into the real army and uh, set you up for success. So I did that down at Fort Benning. And then uh, went to Ranger School January 10th, I believe, uh, 2005. You, you mentioned that uh, you had West Point grads in your classes. Does that imply that you were a distinguished military graduate? Yes, sir. I was a distinguished military graduate. And usually uh, the, the guys that are mixed in with West Point guys are DMGs. And, and that's another feather in your cap. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Again, cool. another nod to Vandy. Uh, great, great program. You were probably as better prepared uh, mentally for Ranger School than than most, I would think, uh, with your family experience and whatnot. But did it meet your expectations? Exceed your expectations? I think yes. Uh, you know, I would I'd go back to combat multiple times over than go back to Ranger School, and I think that's the that's the point of the school. It's a show you your absolute limits and when your body's breaking down, how you perform under stress, how to recognize that. But it's it, tremendously confidence building. So I, I went in at 195 pounds. I graduated at 162. Um, so, you know, in amazing physical shape when I went in. And by the time I'd gotten to Florida phase, uh, this series of, of, of stuff that had happened, like I got 
I got poison ivy and bedding phase the you know, first three weeks. And I begged the medics for steroids. They wouldn't give it to me because they're like, it weakens your immune system. I'm like, you guys don't understand. And then it was all over my body. Then they gave me the steroids because they saw how bad it was. Then I got bronchitis. And so mountain phase for me was really tough because I could barely breathe. And it's winter. So you're carrying the 75 pound rock and you know, you crest ridgelines and I literally couldn't get enough oxygen. I'd have like starbursts of color, you know, going off. And we had this ranger instructor, Sergeant First Class Schultz, and he he really changed my philosophy on leadership. And I remember talking to him, I, I had my platoon leader, he was my ranger instructor when I was a platoon leader in mountain phase, and it was just like sleeting. So, you know, the infantryman's prayer, which is, please, Lord, you know, let let me be cold or wet, but not both. <laughs> so we were both at that time. And I was talking to him and I said, you're different from all the other ranger instructors. Uh, you, you're an amazing teacher. You don't yell a lot. You know why? And he just looks me right in the eye and he goes, ranger. He goes, never mistake my kindness for weakness. And I found out later that Sergeant First Class Schultz actually had the lowest go rate of all the other ranger instructors in mountain face had about a 12% pass rate when he was grading platoon leaders. I, I got my go from him, which is still one of the things I'm most proud of in this life. But what he gave me was actually something much greater that I still carry with me to this day, which is that you can be kind and compassionate and still be a really strong leader at the same time. You, there, you don't need to choose between sort of losing control of your fight or flight or or treating people in a way that um, isn't how you would want to be treated. And then if you enforce standards and you teach, you can really be kind and, and hold a high, a high bar. So, so between that conversation, by the time I got to Florida phase, I remember uh, when I was jumping into uh, to swamp phase, I didn't care if the shoot opened or not. <laughs> you know, when I was like, at this point, I'm so miserable. It's a win-win if it opens. It'll be a relief. <laughs> Uh, yeah, when I got down to the ground, I was like, well, I will literally die before I quit this school. And I think once you've reached that point, there's so much confidence that comes from that. It's true grit that like when you commit yourself to something that matters and you see it through, I think that's that's why that school is so important in terms of separating those folks who have that level of commitment to something that's important and hard. And for me, there was no way at 23 years old, I was going to walk in front of 46 guys and ask them to trust me with their life. If I didn't have that fortitude to uh, put the mission above my own personal comfort. And it was really important just for credibility, which is at the heart of leadership. And I wanted to be worthy of the rank and not just have it given to me because I had a degree from Vanderbilt. Not to get ahead, but I, I wonder if in your civilian career and ID me and that whole range, um, have you ever had that same kind of a moment where you had to draw on all that true grit to push yourself to move ahead? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there have been times um, it's a different type of courage, but yeah, I mean, when I've wanted to make identity consumer centric, when you look at how the internet works, you have data brokers and enterprises that own your information. They divorce you from your own data. And so you can already actually look to Europe to see that there's much more efficient and privacy enhancing ways of accessing benefits. And so it's taken me 13 years, you know, to build IDME to 110 million plus users. The impetus for when it started was military families, you know, and, and when, so you look at, the FTC data that shows that veterans suffer from identity theft at twice the rate of the typical American. And then I saw behavior, you know, we're on Veterans Day at like the Outback. Uh, veterans would show their DD-214, which has their social security number on it, to a server to get a free blooming onion. I just remember thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, don't show your social to a stranger to get a, a fried vegetable. And so it was really about service that, you know, th this, this, there was so much goodwill and I wanted to connect the military to that, but allow folks to, to access that online in a way that mimics kind of modern life and not the 1950s where you have to go in in person with paperwork to prove 
who you are, but I also wanted to make sure that that we got rid of um, the identity theft rates that are really disparate for a community that is family to me. And so that was like the North Star. There's a, there's so many challenges that come in the way where the company nearly failed multiple times. I mean, I told my one of our board members and my my mentor, Kelly Purdue in 2011, I was like, Kelly, I don't think this is going to work. And he was like, Blake, he's like, never tell that to anyone again, especially of investors. And he's like, chin up, we're going to find a way through it. And I, and I think there's always highs and lows, but if you're committed to a problem that really matters and you have people around you who believe in you and who are inversely correlated, they pick you up when you're low and they bring you down when you're high, you can really achieve great things if you stick with it. And, and Ranger School taught me that for sure. Okay, so you went to uh, Ranger School and then how long be between pinning the tab on and deploying to Iraq? So I was a rifle platoon leader for five months. I took over a platoon that was underperforming, but had an amazing cadre of NCOs. Always and, the best uh, kind of assignment. Yeah, that's right. Actually, one of my my grandpa, the you know, command sergeant major hall's rules was if you have a choice of assignment, go to the one with the worst reputation. So when you leave, you can see the difference good leadership makes. That was one exactly. of his, his three maxims. Um, and so uh, so I had wonderful NCOs and, uh, and followed a uh, a platoon leader who just wasn't very nice. And so I was a hero just for being normal. <laughs> you know, not the guy named Hernandez that he called Hernando all the time. And the, the guy's like, sir, would you please? And Sean, Sean, like, why do you, why do you call him Hernando? If he likes, if his name's Hernandez, he's like, I don't know. He's like, <laughs> so, so anyway, so I just, you know, first day I'm like Hernandez. He's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> but I sat, you know, I sat down with, with my NCOs and, uh, and I said, you know, listen, I, I know you respect the Ranger tab. I'm airborne. My degree from Vanderbilt. There's no way that I know how to conduct a raid or or put in an ambush more than you guys. You've been doing it for a decade. And so I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. I'm going to hold you accountable for standards and outcomes, but I'm going to tell you how to do your job. And by the way, if I'm ever screwed up, tell me I'm screwed up, just never in front of the guys. That's what I was waiting for, that you would actually ask them to tell you them to tell you how to do your job <laughs> yeah, because they know right. more about it than you do. That's exactly right. And so I was like, I know I'm going to make mistakes. Just don't undermine me in front of the men. Pull me aside. I will listen to you. I just saw big grins all the way around. I had an amazing ride. And so we were- This guy gets it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it was they were so easy to lead. They were so wonderful and competent. And so between live fires and some other exercises we did, we were consistently the top performing platoon. And so Lieutenant Colonel Huggins, who's a battalion commander at the time, uh, picked me to be his recon platoon leader uh, over, you know, there were, I think, 23, 24 lieutenants, half of whom were first lieutenants. So he picked me over all the lieutenants that were a year ahead of me. It didn't make me the most popular guy because he, he thought that his scout platoon needed to get turned around. So um, I ultimately ended up leading scouts, I believe for for 22 months. So altogether I had 27 months of platoon leader time, uh, which is pretty unbelievable because that's the most special time I think in any infantry officer's tenure uh, in the army is, is leading a platoon. And this was all before Iraq? Right before Iraq, yep. And so we were training uh, re reconnaissance, precision engagement, uh, that platoon had culture issues and and that was that was the first time you know i was responsible for selection where I, you know i didn't just inherit guys and whatever the army and uncle sam gave you i could actually pick the soldiers i wanted and and so that certainly was the beginning of a tremendous education that's continued to this day which is how do you build a great team and you know what are the skills you look for what are the behavioral traits and values that you look for what are the different types of you know cognitive capabilities in different roles and i had no idea what i was doing at the time you know i was like i know you need to run like six minute miles for forever and you need to be able to shoot and do sector sketches like really well but other than that i really didn't know but that that was tremendous as far as um trial and error and, and beginning that process of figuring out what a great team looks like and then we deployed we deployed to Iraq and um, when we were in Kuwait and about to go to Mosul, uh, some three letter agencies came and talked to us and they said, forget everything that you guys have learned and trained for, for reconnaissance and precision engagement. And I'm like, oh, perfect. So like, you know, if, 
turned around this one platoon, turned around the second platoon, and they were like, you're now going to be running kill capture missions like a SWAT team. And that's fine. We're all infantrymen, but we uh, we kind of burned the midnight oil in Kuwait doing a lot of close quarter combat drills and everything else because we realized we were going to go back to doing more traditional CQB stuff versus, you know, hides and and precision engagement and things of that nature. You had a little bit of a learning curve, though, in that with the new equipment and uh, and the new mission. I guess that was measured by the progress that you made on your mission success rate. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So there's there's like a scene now in Zero Dark Thirty called Tradecraft, where it's it's unbelievable. These these like programs that were pretty secret at the time, and they're now in Hollywood and stuff. But that's that that scene gives a pretty close approximation of of what we were doing. Yeah. So so basically, the theater average for success uh, on a kill capture uh, call out was about forty percent, give or take. And for the first month or two, we were in the twentieth percentile, so we sucked. But we kept learning and figuring out like why we sucked. And by month three, we got up to about theater average. We caught um, some pretty significant targets. The head of the um, Mujahideen Shura Council for Mosul, potentially the spiritual leader of Al-Qaeda for northern Iraq. And based on the success rates, which were ahead of the other sister battalions and the types of targets we were bringing in, uh, then Colonel Townsend, now General Townsend, four-star general who commanded all the troops in Iraq and Syria, uh, made me the uh, the kill capture for- force for uh, northern Iraq, uh, where his brigade had the battle space. The brigade got retasked as a surge strike force under General Petraeus. So Lake Tartar, the outskirts of Fallujah, every neighborhood of Baghdad, um, a little bit of Karbala and some of the Quds proxies. And over that time, we we kept getting better and better till over the last two months, our success rate uh, was consistently over 90%. Wow. And I'm sure you got all the top jobs then from that point for sure. <laughs> yeah, you were credited uh, by senior officers for one operation where they say you saved at least 20 lives and oh. you were awarded the Bronze Star with the device. Thanks, Tell sir. us about that operation and the impact it had on you. Yeah, gosh. So I'm the son of an artilleryman, as, as we discussed at Fort Sill. And I I love to soaking up knowledge from my NCOs. And, and I and I hated the idea of being mortared <laughs> like that at any time. I'm like, these guys are disrupting my sleep. So I hated the mortar men in particular. And the NCOs who'd been to Iraq before were like, hey, sir, this listen, like they like to fire max range for their tubes because they want to be as far away from the fob as possible and they like to have line of sight to an aiming point and so i kind of filed that away with me and uh we were on our second patrol of the day we were leaving a ford operating base on in mosul it's called dogleg and so again second patrol i remember guys were tired uh because it, it's like five or six o'clock so like circadian rhythm the sun's kind of Going down over the Tigris, everyone's like, uh, like, you know, 100 plus degrees inside the trucks. And uh, we were passing the combat support hospital and I heard. Boom, 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 boom. And I was like, that's I know what that is. That's a time on target. That's battery fire. And I was like, what? And it, and it was close enough that I could literally feel some of the overpressure like wash over the truck. I mean, the point of impact was probably just like 100 meters uh, away from me. And and then you know thirty seconds more, and so I I called it in like Patriot X Ray Lightning Six, a monitoring sustained battery fire on the combat support hospital. They acknowledged as as we did this dog legs, so we turned left away from the base. A vehicle bomb went off my trail truck, so we we just escaped like this trap where they were trying to keep the the base quick reaction force pinned in. And I looked behind me and I was like, well, I could see the guard towers opening up. And I'm like, what? Well, I don't want to get kind of a Polish ambush here and firing back and forth. But in the meantime, I had I had said those sound like 82s uh, and maybe a 120, which turned out to be right. I, I'm like, I'm at the point of impact. So I just drew a quick radius out for their max range. There were two fields that have line of sight to a water tower that was right next to the combat support hospital. I circled the southern one. And later, like my sniper section leader was like, sir, when you told us you thought you knew where they were at, they're like, we thought you were full of shit. So <laughs> I'm like, oh my like, guys, I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure I know where they're at. I'm like, get down. 
and like um punch it so these striker vehicles that we had 2010 vehicles you know eight wheels we got them up to like 55 60 miles an hour coming down the other side of the bridge we covered five or six kilometers really quickly and so i got the platoon you know headed towards what i thought was where they were firing and as we got about 400 meters out patriot x-ray the battalion headquarters like lightning six grid from q36 follows which is the ground radar that that pins where the uh the fire's coming from the grid they gave me i kid you not was literally right in the middle of this red circle that i'd quickly drawn on my map and so my next transmission was roger like 400 meters out and closing we uh we crested this berm and there were uh four mortar tubes uh 382s 1120 uh, and guys like literally just carrying shells that like looked up and were like, uh-oh. <laughs> so uh, I led with my snipers uh, to engage. And um, I mean, we just lit those lit those guys up um, down there. They were in kind of like a shallow bowl below us. I took my section north. Um, we destroyed a truck that was trying to get away with one of the tubes. We ended up uh, stirring up a hornet's nest, though, so there were there was no close air support available. Uh, the quick reaction force couldn't get off the base, and there were different overwatch positions that they had set up. So we ended up fighting um, in three different directions. I had 22 guys out there with me, and so when you take the vehicle crews out, I had 14 dismounts. There were enough friendly forces that I couldn't allow cruiser weapons to fire because of uh, I could be firing 50 cal back into the the fob on the, the LSA diamond back on the other side. So it was all small arms. We fought that way for about an hour. We took uh, zero casualties, even though um, my guys did some pretty brave stuff <laughs> where uh, one of the trucks almost tipped over on the berm. And I had two of my scouts that uh, that crawled out to uh, to anchor it under pretty intense fire where like bullets were kicking up. Uh, dirt in the berm, like all around him from the overwatch positions. And one of them, one of them said, is that friendly fire? And uh, one of the other scouts who'd come from Ranger Regiment was like, uh, does it look friendly? <laughs> so, so I'm so proud of those guys. And, uh, and at the end of it, there were 10 urgent casualties as a result of the mortar rounds that had landed on the base. But over two thirds of the rounds, uh, we, we got there so quickly, they weren't able to fire them. And it, it was huge shells that were coming down ended up uh, three bronze stars with V devices for that particular engagement because we just went straight for the jugular. And that was my philosophy. Americans were dying. I I, I could tell that was the case. Uh, we are paid to do a job, which is to protect folks. And um, I'm so proud of my platoon for what they did that day. And so when we got back to the base, uh, Colonel Huggins was like, Math's pretty simple, 10 urgent casualties. They weren't e even able to get through a third of their rounds. Tell your guys they, you know, saved 20 critical casualties or deaths uh, based on what they did today. And uh, we ended up partying to like three in the morning until the first sergeant from one of the other companies like came over and uh, yelled at us and made us go to sleep. But um, uh, I'm just super, super proud of what we did that day. Blake, I'm in, in awe of you and, and uh, just going through my mind who we're going to get to play you in the movie, because uh, I think that it's a great, great story. Uh, I, I am told that you led something like in, in your full 15 months there, 450 combat patrols. Yes, sir. And in the process of doing that took zero casualties. Is that a, really true? Now, now you're going to make me really emotional. So uh, we did. I think by some metrics, we had more time outside the wire than any other platoon in the battalion. And when we landed back at Fort Lewis, General Townsend, uh, who's Colonel Townsend at the time, he uh, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Captain Hall, he said, if I had to pick one platoon in my entire brigade at the beginning of this deployment that would have taken zero casualties, he goes, yours would have been the absolute last on my list. And he said, job well done. Um, I credit God for it, honestly, that um, I, uh, when I was in Mosul, I got down on my knees and I claimed a promise from Psalms that no weapon formed against me may prosper. And I claimed that promise for my men. Uh, and right before I went to business school, two, two of my snipers pulled me aside one night. And I'll, I'll keep that interaction private. But um, 
you know, th- those are things that I'll always like carry with me. It's getting me choked up right now because I understand. Yeah. I carried their life with me for 15 months and, um, well, very- I know 42 people are very, very proud of you. And then the, Thanks, you, know, you can say you, uh, kept your promise to keep them alive. And I'm just, again, in awe of you. Okay, following this world of excitement in in your 15-month deployment, what did the Army have next in store for you? Well, so so when I got back, uh, I know Colonel Huggins wanted me to stay in the Army when I told him I was going to go to business school. He had had some colorful language for me. <laughs> but then he said, you know, look, I'm I'm not going to write you a letter of recommendation unless you apply to Harvard Business School, which wasn't even on my list. I was like, sir, I was like, I haven't used the three syllable word in the last like 15 months. I was like, have you heard my guys? Like we grunt and curse more than we actually string a sentence together. So um he's like, You're gonna do it. And uh that's he's like my second dad and a mentor. And uh but in the meantime, he, he also tried to convince me to stay. So he, he almost uh, gave me Charlie Company, is a, which would have been incredible to be like Rifle PL, Recon PL, Company Commander without any of the uh, the sort of nug work in between. But I ended up becoming the Battalion S4, which is about as far from glory as you can go from being a scout platoon leader to running logistics for the battalion. And so I just did that for six or seven months, long enough to, to know that you know, I was in a meeting and there were so many acronyms and jargon that after 10 minutes, I literally just put my pen in my notebook and I closed it. <laughs> and I, I talked to Colonel Townsend when I came. I was like, I, I think I'm a fairly smart guy. I didn't understand two consecutive sentences in that entire hour long <laughs> meeting. And so, so I actually resolved at the time. I was like, if I ever lead a company, I'm going to ban acronyms. I have failed miserably at actually doing that. Uh, turns out they're pretty handy, but um but yeah, so that that was what I did. Uh, learned a little bit about the logistics world. Had a wonderful uh, NCO Sergeant Morell there, and and then I went to to Harvard Business School, and I stayed in the reserves, supporting um, European Command and J five plans against a certain uh, aggressive country um, that might threaten the Baltics, and that's what I did as a reservist from two thousand eight to twenty eleven. Just to, uh, maybe this was your first encounter with looking into the Veterans Administration, but did you consider VA education benefits to get your Harvard MBA? Oh, v- VA was great. In fact, there there's VA programs and based on your service-connected disability or whatever the rating is that doctors give you when you get out, I'm actually glad you brought that up. Like there's an amazing program, vocational rehabilitation, some other things that um, as a four-year RTC winner, I wasn't eligible for traditional GI benefits, but because of some of like the back and issues and everything else that had gone on in Iraq wearing all that body armor, there's programs that definitely um, reimbursed my tuition at HBS that were amazing. And I only found out about it like in my second year when one of my buddies told me about it. And I was like, oh, I think my rating's like, I don't know, 10% or something. And then I got a letter and I was like, oh man, oh my goodness. So I was able to reach out and um, and the VA was incredible in terms of paying for um, that education. And a lot of the extra capital it freed up, I actually used to start what is now IDME. So, okay. But uh, there also the Frist Foundation gave you a little boost. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for that. So, um, so Harvard had a um, program as well. And because of my ties to Vanderbilt and Nashville, the Frist family, obviously Senator Frist and and the founder of um, HCA, the the huge healthcare organization, they would sponsor different folks for scholarships. And there was a connection there where uh, he had been a, a door gunner in Vietnam. Just an awesome, awesome opportunity. And God bless the Frist family for you know giving back and and supporting. And and that's the thing between. Families like the Frist family and between um, the VA programs, I was very blessed to have a lot of support to make the transition. So doing your Harvard MBA program uh, and any of the projects that you did, did you uh, fantasize about a, a future company you might found? I did. I was, I was looking for the same sense of purpose that I felt when I was in the military. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I thought maybe nonprofits and microfinance um Mohammed Yunus, who started the Grameen Bank with like microfinance in, in Asia, is a Vanderbilt PhD. And so 
I thought that was pretty noble, like economic development in less developed countries. The more I got into like what goes into a nonprofit, now the culture and the fundraising cycle works. I'm like, oh, it sounds great, but the actual execution is something that is quite different from what it feels like. And I, I did a brief stint at McKinsey to try to just dabble in different kind of corporate environments. And I knew that was not for me. Wonderful people, wonderful firm. And and ultimately, I was just on fire to make a difference. And so when I saw this need that was impacting military families, and I thought there was an opportunity to kind of build community, I decided that that's what I was going to go, you know, set out, set out to do and, and kind of just like combat was not very good early on because the the idea directionally was right but the implementation was wrong just like that 20 percent success rate but but i, very I similar to your uh, transition of mission in iraq i guess yeah ex exactly that it, as long as you just keep learning and eventually you can find a mission where you've got really good fit and your skills develop to match it I knew that I couldn't go into a big corporate environment like combat had put lightning into my bones and I saw how fragile life was. So I really I really wanted to max out whatever time I've got on this earth and make a positive impact on other people and do something that gave me the same sense of fulfillment that I felt when I was wearing the uniform. Entrepreneurial terms, uh, mission change, I think, is called a pivot. It's a pivot. Yeah. And, and absolutely. you did a couple of pivots. Uh, just run us through briefly the evolution from troop swap through troop id to what is today id me that's that's right so so from may of 2010 when i finished up at harvard business school and got my diploma we didn't really find product market fit until the end of 2012. so so it was about two years ish initially we wanted to build a trusted version of craigslist starting with the military um i thought craigslist was right for disruption and between military and maybe students on campuses, you could tap into these communities that had a different set of needs that move more often. And just like Facebook started with students, you could grow, wasn't able to get distribution fast enough from USAA and military.com. So I was like, ah, pivoted quickly to daily deals because living social was hot at the time. It was like, well, I know military discounts are a thing. And if I can get brands to advertise those offers and we verify that only military folks can join. Maybe there's a cool segmentation of that business model. Within a few months, realized the cohort data didn't make sense. There was just too much active and passive churn. I actually talked to Tim O'Shaughnessy at Living Social. I was like, I don't know what you're seeing, but this doesn't look like a viable business model to me. You know, they ended up raising a billion dollars and going to to literally zero, um, which is Really, you got to get the unit economics right. But we'd had enough feedback from customers at that time where they said, you, you as an application aren't really interesting, but they go, your ability to verify communities and identity in real time, if you would turn that into a product that we could embed into our own workflows, we would buy that. And that's when I was like, oh, PayPal for identity that like we could we could be PayPal for identity and veterans wouldn't have to upload their paperwork at all these different sites and brands could offer it online. And then the marketer said, by the way, it's not just military, it's students, it's first responders, it's teachers, it's corporate employee discounts, it's social influencers, it's our pro programs for outdoor guides. All of it's either confined to brick and mortar distribution or we have teams that are small that that's all that they do is manually process these applications. And I was like, oh, cool. And then the government was, you know, through the Department of Commerce said, why do we make Americans create a login and reprove who they are and pay a credit bureau every time they go from SSA to IRS to VA? Why don't we just verify them once and let that login and their verified data move with them? And I was like, well, that's exactly what the market's telling me to do over here for these communities. And so we won over $5 million in grant funding from the Department of Commerce through NIST. Uh, negotiated with uh, Vuxon and Predrag and Montenegro in summer of 2012 to buy the IDME domain, ultimately launched the initial version of, of what is now IDME as, as Troop ID. We wanted to validate the fit with just military before we went nuts and built a holistic wallet, signed up 48,000 users in 45 days at the end of 2012. And that was it. Now, now we we have 110 million users. We verified the legal identity of 45 million Americans. And we sign up anywhere from like 75 to 90,000 users a day. 
in the uh, not too distant uh, past, we, we've had some wonderful grant programs for the, the PPP, the payroll protection plan and, <laughs> yeah. and, and things like that, that companies would apply for. And I've seen the number like 200 billion maybe was obtained through fraud in that. Yes, sir. Uh, how do you con contextualize that as a lost opportunity? You know, I think um, there were dual mandates, right? That uh, in the in the context of the pandemic, folks wanted to get money out to people who needed it really quickly, and so the intent was good. But you know what they say about um, the road to you know where is paved with, um, and uh, that's kind of what they got into. There's no cybersecurity contemplated, and when you're delivering, you know, for unemployment alone, I think it was almost nine hundred billion dollars. If you had a name, a date of birth, and a social security number, you could steal someone's identity and apply for benefits in their name, which creates, it blocks that person potentially from their own unemployment benefits, creates all sorts of tax issues downstream for that person. So we we started to work with Florida in June of 2020, and then very quickly, Georgia and a few other states. When we got to Arizona in October of 2020, they had 570,000 400 new weekly unemployment claims. Arizona's only got 7 million people, including kids. So um, basically what's happening is these crime rings were taking stolen data and running bots against it. And we had states tell us that. They're like, we know it's fraud, not because we have any sophisticated fraud infrastructure, but because they file the claim end to end in less than 60 seconds. So um, we had built a lot of features that could both stop the vast majority of that fraud while also um, enabling people who don't have credit history or who live overseas to prove who they are. Um, and a state after state turned to us, we not only knocked the fraud down, but in Florida, I think they had they had tens of thousands of people that data brokers had flagged as fraud. And they were like, we think that a lot of them are fraud, but we not all of them, right? And, and I think in Florida, uh, we unblocked something like 12,000 people, give or take, that have been waiting for weeks or months while keeping the fraud at bay. And it was something like only 20 to 25 percent were legitimate. But those people would have been completely stuck without some of the access programs that, that we built. And and really, fraud is a tailwind. So states told us that as they adopted us, uh, neighboring states would see an immediate surge in fraud because we weren't stopping fraud in America. We we're stopping it in Arizona, but then it would move to Colorado or move to Texas. And so states began to rapidly buy us because we were kind of setting up a cybersecurity shield and they wanted to be covered by it. And while I love IDME, the full credit goes to the, the civil servants and experts at the National Institute of Standards and Technology who had written all the technical and policy controls that we just implemented but they're the ones who are like, this is what you need to do to secure benefits when you're delivering the better part of a trillion dollars through the digital channel. And it turns out that they were right on the money. And so we're just an empirical data point that shows that, that they know what they're talking about. That's that's a terrific uh, tribute to uh, NIST. I, I thank you for that. Of course. Uh, by the way, full disclosure, and I should have mentioned this a good bit earlier here, that I am an investor in IDME. Hey, all and, right. And that's through a mutual friend that Blake and I have by the name of Kelly Perdue. Uh, I've been an investor in his fund, uh, Moonshots Capital. And they are, they are a major backer uh, of IDME. Tell me about Kelly, uh, for just for the audience, uh, he was, I think, the apprentice number two yeah. on that uh, uh, reality TV show. But uh, how did you run into, into Kelly and what role has he played in your life? You know, Harvard, whatever, it, it's it's like learning about combat versus walking a combat patrol are two very different things. Learning about business and actually running and operating a business or two different things. I had no idea what I was doing in 2010 when I first started out. And um, David Tish, uh, Tish family in New York, obviously quite well known. He was the first managing director of Techstars New York. He was my first check in $20,000. And he met Kelly at a conference and he called me up and he goes, Blake, just met this guy, Kelly Purdue. He's super smart, former army intelligence officer, you know, Ranger tab, like all this other stuff. He's turned around a few companies MA activity take you know some public his investors love him he's like i really think you should get him on your board 
Um, and so I was like, okay. So Kelly actually stood me up in our first phone call. And when I remember waiting for him to join the conference call in the parking lot, I'm like, whatever. And then when uh, when we actually did connect the second time, you know, kind of remember swallow your your pride and like, even when you're super busy, uh, he's he's just changed my life. He's like my older brother now. And he he kept me from making mistakes that would have been fatal to the business. He He pulled my chin up in the early days when I was all by myself for all intents and purposes. Tanel, our technical co-founder, was all the way in Estonia. So I didn't have anybody. I didn't have a team, you know, and I'd always had a team, even in the military, even in ranger school, you have a team. And I, I found that to be just profoundly isolating to be fundamentally alone. And so Kelly, Kelly was wonderful. I, I called him so much. Uh, I moved his wife, Dawn, down to the second most called phone number on his list. And at some point he's like, Blake, he's like, I love you, but you just bumped my wife to like number two. We're going to have to talk about boundaries. Um, and it's just been the most special relationship. He's, he's always been a terrific mentor and teacher and like any great partner has confidence and faith always has your back, but also holds you accountable and challenges you when necessary. And I love, I love Kelly to death. And for all the, the veterans who are fortunate enough to get an investment uh, for moonshots between him and Craig Cummings. You couldn't ask for better partners on the investor side as you, as you set out to build a business. There's a, a line that I recall from uh, years ago as a, a plebe uh, at West Point, and, and that was, uh, all I are and all I ever will be, I owe to my beast barrack squad leader. <laughs> and they are the first mentor, I think, that you uh, encounter uh, as a cadet at West Point. And I think there's many, many takeaways that I hope our listeners have gleaned from uh, our discussion today. But I don't think anything is more important than the role of mentorship. And I, I, you've recounted all the way from starting with your family, but uh, your battalion commanders and, and your NCOs that, that worked for you were actually mentors in many ways. And I, I would ask you, uh, are you a mentor today? And uh, are you paying that forward? And with an expectation that the answer is obviously yes. <laughs> I always try to pay it forward. I'm in a unique context right now in hypergrowth where I am learning as fast as I can while upgrading the the company and and also helping mentor leaders within my business who are scaling at uneven rates. You know, when you you go from like 16 million to 130 million in revenue, some have seen that scale and swim more naturally and so there's both internal mentorship where my job is to support and set up my leaders for success and to make sure they're in a role where they can succeed. And then anytime I meet a founder who's, you know, less than two years in, I think the first two years are always so hard. I will always be generous with my with my time and and with making introductions to help because I think that's one of the most special things about this country is that we have an ecosystem where everybody tries to help someone else win, even if it doesn't benefit them at all. And so if, I have so much gratitude for how people help me in different ways to be successful that w whenever, you know, I have the opportunity, I, I definitely want to reciprocate that for the next generation of entrepreneurs who are, who are on their way. Well, that's great. Uh, respectful of your time, I'm going to ask you one last question. What advice do you, would you have for young people today regarding military service? Oh, man, I think... I think you have to serve in some way, and it could be military. It could be something else like Teach for America. We live at a very interesting time where our society is ripped apart by our differences while forgetting that we have far more in common as Americans. And the beautiful thing about serving your country is that I have no idea if my soldiers were Republicans or Democrats or independents, nor do I care. We have a lifelong bond that has stitched us together for eternity. And if you want e pluribus unum out of many one and to find meaning and purpose, uh, the military is a wonderful conduit to that. And, and I firmly believe that as a country, we need a tribal rite of passage and shared hardship because that is what knits teams together. And so it might not sound like the most sexy thing to do, but it's the thing that when you're older and you look back, it is the thing that you will likely be most proud of. I, I certainly am of, of the team that I led, even with what I'm doing in tech and everything else, I'll, I'll never forget looking at my 32 scouts and snipers and the intelligence attachments after we took apart 
of the ICA bomb network and, you know, telling them you'll never see the faces of the car bomb victims, you know, that, that you save, but you just look at the math and the, the statistics. Now they no longer exist. That's your legacy and what you can tell your grandkids about. And I think, I think we all need to serve a higher purpose. And actually there's profound gratitude and happiness that comes from it. That's enduring. And that will make you a better leader and manager for the rest of your life. I, I strongly encourage it. And I think we need more service in this country. I couldn't ask for a better closing. Blake, I want to thank you for taking the time today to join us in this really fascinating discussion. And I want to thank you for your service to the nation, first and foremost, as an Army Ranger, but also for the valuable services that you're providing to the world of digital commerce through IDME. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that IDME is saving us all as taxpayers literally billions of dollars through fraud prevention. And you're making possible additional billions of dollars in commerce that simply could not take place without the security that you provide. This is Alan Salisbury, Coda Support Foundation, your host for Profiles in Service. Today, we've been talking with Blake Hall, decorated Army Ranger and CEO and founder of IDME. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Profiles in Service where we examine service to the nation in all of its many dimensions. Thank you for listening. podcast is powered by and copyright of the Code of Support Foundation. Code of Support presents Profiles and Service is hosted by Major General Alan B. Salisbury and produced by Carly Euler. The opinions of the guests on the show do not directly reflect the stance of the Code of Support Foundation. To learn more about Code of Support, please visit codeofsupport.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. If you or someone you know is a service member, veteran, caregiver, or military family member in need of assistance, please visit codeofsupport.org slash get help or search for free resources at patriotlink.org.